Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the big one, the mothership, the DSR you've known, I don't know, all these many years. We've been having this conversation among uh some of us for almost a decade now, uh, and we're glad to all be back with you. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I'm joined by friends and regulars, including Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, thank you, David. Excellent. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I am exceedingly well, thank you, David. Exceedingly well, dependably exceedingly well, and usually with a complaint or two by Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you, Ed? I'm not bad under the circumstances. (laughs) And our guest for today uh, is Noga Tarnopolsky, who has two decades of experience covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict the U.S. and the Middle East, and human rights in South America, one of those subjects we will not be talking about today. Uh, As a freelance journalist based in Jerusalem, her work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Haaretz, and more. Welcome, Noga. Thank you very much. Well, let me start off. You know, each and every day, something new and horrible happens in your region of the world. Uh, What's dominating the headlines there today as we are recording? Two things are dominating the headlines today. One is all of the rumors, conflicting rumors, counter rumors, having to do with a possible deal to free Israel's hostages in Gaza. And I would say significantly amped up protests from family members of the hostages and from their supporters just in Israeli society. And also amping up is the are the attacks on them. It's, it's 
worth focusing on for a minute. Netanyahu's coalition and its supporters are using as their current tactic attacks on families who've lost children, soldiers in Gaza, and on families who have family members held in Gaza for 110 days. Today, for example, the mayor of Jerusalem, who is an ally of this government, um, said that um, he had ordered city inspectors to remove five small protest tents that have been installed not far from Netanyahu's official residence, bothering no one. So there's that is happening. The other thing that's happening and that has at this point flooded the headlines is infighting among Netanyahu's coalition members and infighting among his ministers, including specifically between various Likud kind of pubas. All of this together has brought a feeling of a very fevered feeling, an anarchic feeling. That this sense in Israel that there's simply no one in charge is really, really deep right now. Wow. Corey, you have a, let's, we'll start out with a question from each of us for Noga, and then we'll just have a conversation in which we'll also offer our perspectives. But Corey, let's start with a question. Yeah, so um, given that the infighting in the coalition is new, how how big a risk does that pose to the government remaining in power? And how much does the transition in phases of the military campaign likely weigh on the ability of the government to stay in power? So those are excellent questions. In a way, those are the, you know, $64 million questions here right now. Um, and I I don't know, really, I can't honestly answer you, because on the one hand, obviously, having two senior Likud members in a screaming match, one against the other in the well of the Knesset today, it was supposed to be a, a special session of the parliament to celebrate seven, the 75th anniversary of the opening of the Knesset. I mean, the just the the base level of infighting among all these these very powerful people right now obviously indicates that it's a very fragile coalition, which we know, and it's also a, a weak. It's just weak, and it's not functional. But the other perspective on this is many of Netanyahu's top allies are in power for the first time, and they're scared that they're in power for the last time. And so the infighting may actually persuade them to keep on infighting because at least they can keep on transferring uh, national budget funds to their little pet interests. They can keep their people happy. They can keep, as um, Ben Gvir very blatantly is doing, they can keep um, just decimating the civil service and stuffing it with their own people. So I don't know. We may see a surprise. Um, a very smart guy who I'm meeting tomorrow and who I spoke to a few days ago told me he thinks that Israel is going to have a date for elections by mid-February. Not elections, but a date for elections. And he thinks the reason the reason for this is that Netanyahu is now being criticized for, through his uh, misadventures and malfunction, he's being accused of hampering the war effort. And this person I spoke with believes that that's not something he'll be able to survive. Hmm. I don't know. 
people closer to the Likud tell me they can't see elections before later in the year, let's say. You know, you can't think of a group of nicer folks to descend into complete chaos and disarray um, and to uh, have their careers near their end than this crowd. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it does not bode well for Israel's governance or for solving this crisis. Uh, Ed? Just picking up on that theme of an election, Nova, um, what what probability would you give that three months from now, Netanyahu is still prime minister? And um, sort of in addition to that, if if he does go and Benny Gantz is the next prime minister, I believe he, he's very clearly leading in the polls for that position. Um, would Gantz be um, the far better, the dramatically better partner and interlocutor for the US and for all other potential conversations that we hope Israel will have um, that, that people are supposing he would be? Um, how, how good is Benny Gantz? Benny Gantz is a pretty inscrutable figure. Um, I, um, in three, three months is in April, and even if the government were toppled tomorrow, I'm not sure the elections would take place by the f date that you just said, let's say mid or late April. So I think the chances that Netanyahu will still be in power in April, unfortunately, are excellent. Whether his government will be by then an acting government because it has been toppled or he's been forced to call elections or somehow some parliamentary maneuver against him worked, that's a real question. Um, that's a real question. In terms of, I mean, my sense of Benny Gantz is that he's a responsible leader. I don't know, I don't know in person, I've met him, but I don't know him and um, and he really is a sort of a cipher, but in his public statements, and I want to indicate one in particular, um, he has been, shown himself to be a responsible figure. The, the issue I want to pick up on about Benny Gantz is, you may remember in Israel's cycle of five successive elections, I believe it was the second election, which was mid-corona mid-COVID crisis, that Benny Gantz joined Netanyahu in a very short-lived government. It lasted months. I'm not even sure it lasted six months. It failed because Netanyahu broke the deal between them. They had made a deal of a kind of co-shared prime ministership, whereby after a year, um, Netanyahu would hand over the reins to Gantz, and Netanyahu with complete contempt and mockery at one point fairly early on said, are you joking? Of course, I'm not going to give him power. And basically the, the whole thing fell apart and Israel was thrust to third elections. Benny Gantz was humiliated and he lost more than half of his public support at that point of people who had voted for him so as not to vote for Netanyahu, who he ended up shoring up. And I mentioned this because Gantz is in a very delicate situation now. At the time, he made a massive public mea culpa. And I do give him credit for that. I think we live in an era in which very few public servants have the wherewithal to stand in public and to say, I made a mistake. 
I was tricked, I'm sorry. And Benny Gantz did that. So he's a very storied former general. He has shown that he has the backbone to do what I just described. And right now, he speaks fairly often about the risk he took. But he and Gadi Eisenkot, his number two, who is also former IDF chief of staff, have made it very clear that they firmly believe that had they not joined um, this government, that Israel would now be in an existential regional war. And the Israeli public believes them. So we're all, the whole country here is in limbo right now. Well, Rosa, has that given you enough time to come up with a question? I don't know, David. I, I'm well, we could come back answer. next yeah. week if you like. <laughs> that would be good. No, um, actually, I do. I do have a question, um, Noga. Um, I was really struck by what you said about the degree to which the the sort of Netanyahu wing is now going after um, families of uh, soldiers who are serving and families of hostages and and so forth and that um i guess there there are a couple of questions you know that's so reminiscent of what we have increasingly in the last few years seen in the united states um where you get these ordinary people who get targeted by the far right um in all kinds of ways you know who find their protesters outside their house and they're getting death threats and they're getting you know harassed by officials who are in in league with the group that does not like them and so forth um and it's so, uh, you know, devastating, I think, not least for any culture of civic participation, because, you know, once people start feeling like, boy, if you go on jury duty or an election official or your kid gets shot in a school massacre at Sandy Hook or whatever it may be, you're, you know, well, I mean, that's not a form of civic participation that we should prize, obviously. But, but you know, that people start feeling like I don't dare be out in the public space in any way because I will be personally targeted and I will suffer and my family will suffer. But I wonder, so my two questions are, you know, one, um, one, to what extent you see this as a relatively new phenomenon within Israeli culture, that kind of personalized targeting of people who are not public figures um, or sort of inadvertent public figures. Uh, and two, I'm curious, I mean, one of the things obviously that, that, we've all been very attuned to is the the degree to which the there's sort of increasingly a kind of authoritarian playbook that that both uh, Donald Trump in this country and and Netanyahu in, in Israel are are reading from. And I wonder to what extent is there actual contagion back and forth on these these tactics? Um or do you see these as just this would have happened no matter what? No, of course there's contagion. Of course there is because we're talking about the culture of leadership. Um, I, I'm going to have very depressing answers for you to both your questions. <laughs> okay, great. It's a new phenomenon. Um, it's not new as in since the war began. Right. It's new since, there are two dates. There's a lot of debate among, you know, those of us who, in the end, we've dedicated our career to covering Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, one of the debates is what the hell happened to him. And many people think that he changed. Um, and the debate among those people is, did he change in 2015, which is when he he thought he really could lose to Bougie Herzog, who at that time was uh, Isaac Herzog leading the Labour Party. 
And that was the first time Netanyahu simply went completely off the books in his campaign. No rules, no limits, no insult was too bad. Or those who believe that um, the real change in him happened in 2019 when he was indicted and he began to perceive the state, in fact, as his enemy, the institutions of the state as his enemy. I'm, I, I mean, I think both of those theories have something to them, have some truth to them. I personally think something else. I think we misunderstood Netanyahu. I think all of us who have observed him for a long time have to make a very big mea culpa. I think we let him slide, as the Israeli public did, because he appeared to have other qualities that were good for the nation or that were good enough. You know, good enough. He was a good enough prime minister. So I'm of, of that school. In any event, the attacks on individuals is a fairly recent phenomenon brought about by Netanyahu specifically. And him employing these tactics is what has allowed um, those who surround him to employ the same tactics. In terms of authoritarianism, I want to tell you something that I feel is quite scary and that makes Netanyahu's removal extremely urgent. Mm -hmm. Let's even, it's amazing to say this, but let's set aside the tragedy of this war and the human suffering and the kind of strategy-less anarchy that is driving a lot of the dynamic right now. What has happened is... <clears throat> Amazingly, the Israeli protest movement basically managed to put a halt, a temporary halt, but a halt in Netanyahu's plan to subsume the judiciary under an unfettered executive. Um, and, and that's a pretty astonishing thing. But what's happening now in the war um, and with emergency powers is that basically the government isn't, it can't pass any laws because part of the war cabinet deal between Gantz and Netanyahu is that no kind of unilateral legislation will be passed, but they are acting like autocrats without passing the laws. Mm -hmm. So you see the finance minister pillaging the state coffers, not for the needs of the war, but to stuff his illegal hilltop settlements in the West Bank. You see the minister of education literally emptying out hundreds of accumulated years of expertise in education to put his political dingbats in. So what we're seeing is a government that is acting authoritarian. And I think that Israelis are still under such shock that they're really not focused on this. But every single day, you see major state decisions. Today, I can give you an example. It was um, the amount of flour that entered Gaza today. And, you know, the news this evening, right before I went on with you, was Netanyahu authorized it. More and more, Netanyahu is operating as if he were a kind of unitarian leader. He is operating like an authoritarian leader. And the institutions of the state are still getting in his way, but he's simply not even bothering with the laws. This, in my view, puts Israel in great peril on numerous levels including international law. Um, I, I want to just say one last thing about 
your comment on attacks on individuals. Again, today, there was a terrible example of this in which an ally, a parliamentary ally of Netanyahu, a figure called Tali Gottlieb, started um, posting a series of conspiracies on theor- on Twitter, lunatic stuff, but do mm-hmm. she did so um, publishing the name of the husband of one of the most prominent leaders of what was the protest movement before the war, who it turns out is a senior operative of the Shabak. So she brought him out into the light, literally endangering his life, probably ending his career. An individual has never been known in the public. Right now, the director of the Shin Bet wrote a letter asking the attorney general to sanction this legislator. Mm. And so we're in the middle of an eruption over this nonsense, but it's nonsense that's harmful and that, as you said, it terrifies people. Okay, so let me let me say two things. One, normally at this point in the podcast, we take a break and we sort of erect our paywall and say to everybody who's not a member, you can't keep going. I'm not going to do that here. This is an important discussion. And so what I'd like to do is encourage uh, anybody who's not a member to go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and become a member uh, so that ultimately in other podcasts, you'll be able to hear the whole thing. But for now, we're just going to continue on forward. And there's a question that I'd like to ask all of you based on the prelude here uh, or the, the groundwork that's been laid by Noga. And I'd like to go first to our three regulars kind of briefly and then then Anoga. Um, the government that's being described here doesn't sound anything like a government that Joe Biden would want to be friends with, would want to support, would want to have as his partner. Um, and yet, based on what Noga has said, this is going to be the partner for the foreseeable future. Is there an election in April or May or June? But Netanyahu could be around through the election in the United States, and this kind of behavior could get worse. Imagine yourself for a moment in the Biden administration looking at this, Corey. Um, how do you react? How do you do, do you do a course correction based on the fact that what Noga is talking about is visible, publicly available information? I think as we discussed last week, um, you know, President Biden, every bad decision President Biden has made in national security policy has been the president's own decision. And the president made a decision to go all in in support of Israel after the horrible terrorist attack on October 7th, whether he believed that would produce leverage for him to influence the course of the war is unclear to me because I think it was, like many of his bad decisions, a very emotional, visceral one, not a policy judgment. And so now he's trapped, right? It's not at all clear to me President Biden is in a better position if he now tries to hem and uh, hedge his support for Israel, because that then just calls into question uh, all the, his credibility on other issues, as well as his credibility on Middle East issues. So um, if I were in the Biden administration at this point, 
I would argue that the president should make clear where American interests diverge from the Israeli government's interests while still continuing the emotional connection that he clearly has for the people of Israel. But I think I would be trying to separate the government from the people in order to thread that needle. Uh, same same question, Ed and Rosa, fairly brief answers, and then we'll, we'll go to Dover. I, I agree with Corey. I mean, I think Netanyahu knows that in a blinking contest, Biden's always going to blink first. He can keep calling Biden's bluff. There is form on this. Biden was, during the Obama administration, when Obama you know, gave um, Netanyahu a deadline to um, stop building um, illegal settlements, um, Biden basically behind the scenes, he was there when when these new settlements were announced, reassured Netanyahu that nothing would be carried out and therefore pulled the rug from under the Obama administration's stance. Obama blinked, of course. Um, so I think Netanyahu quite reasonably believes and has said in sort of rather indiscreet and recorded moments, oh, I've got the Americans wrapped around my little finger. And there is no reason to believe that is going to change. The one compelling argument that clearly hasn't yet broken through to, to Biden is that Netanyahu would like Trump to win. There can be no doubt about that. And we'll keep biting the hand that feeds him, the Biden hand that feeds him. If that can't break through, I mean, nothing else will. But if that can't, then frankly, I despair. This is, this is an extraordinary stance for an American president um, facing close re-election to, to be taking. No, no question. Rosa? I, I mean, I think that's right. And and it's quite, it, it's appalling and depressing to see as Biden is increasingly sort of publicly humiliated by Netanyahu, just kind of snickering and saying, haha, don't you worry, don't you worry about the Americans, because, you know, we don't have to pay attention to that. And we're not paying attention to that. And they're not going to do anything anyway. I mean, that is not a place that an American president wants to be, to have an ally uh, ignoring you openly. You know, not even bothering to pretend anymore that we're, you know, um, you know, that's sort of on the uh there's a there's a important place in international relations for lies and hypocrisy and, and Netanyahu's not even bothering to pretend. Um, so I, I do but I, I do wonder if I'm Joe Biden and who oh, God alone knows I'm glad I'm not Joe Biden actually for multiple reasons, but you know, at what point he starts realizing that the the costs to him as an effective leader, either on the global stage or in terms of uh, uh, projecting leadership to domestic constituencies, um, at what point does he calculate it that the cost to him of a, the ability to say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a leader um, of tolerating this, you know, and, look, and looking like he's getting played, um, begin to exceed from his perspective, the potential costs, uh, the risks that he might associate with even being seen as backing down in defense of the Israeli people, as opposed to the decisions of this particular Israeli government. And, and I, you know, I think we're past that point. I also think that he's got to, I hope he has advisors who are saying to him just from an electoral standpoint, um, you know, you are the Netanyahu's administration is now doing things that really are unconscionable. Um, and meanwhile, you are losing younger voters and you are you are losing uh uh muslim american voters particularly in some absolutely key battleground states you know so i i would like to think that that starts breaking through to him it's not just that netanyahu wants trump to win 
Um, it's that Biden is now collaborating in something that is going to make it a lot easier for Trump to win. And I hope I hope that starts getting through to him. By the way, just as this is a, a, a quibble, but um, we, I think we need to be very careful with regard to who, which voters are being lost. Some are younger. Some are Muslim American. Some are um, Arab American, but they're not Muslim. Not Muslim. Absolutely but, and, correct. And and that's a, another fairly substantial yes. group. No. Um, yeah. Thank you for thank you for noting that, David. That's that is important. Um, so Noga, having heard all of this, um, you know, I know you're a reporter and you're a really, really good reporter. And frankly, following you on Twitter has been the primary window I've had into this that I have found uh both believable and um kind of emotionally attuned to where I am. So I'm very grateful for it. But and and you're not an advisor to Joe Biden. But Joe Biden is, as far as I can tell and read, a popular political figure in Israel right now. It, the United States has an important relationship with Israel right now. Do you think, given the situation in Israel, the Biden administration should change its stance? And if so, how? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your very kind words. Um, I have to tell you guys that I have a really different perspective on on Joe Biden, on his administration's mm -hmm. actions. Um, so maybe that, in this case, uh, really my geographical location or the beat that I cover gives me a different perspective. I'm not sure. One thing I want to say just at the start, and this is far from my beat, is, you know, I read probably much of the same media that you do or see some of the same media that you do. I am far from being persuaded that in November of this year, even Michigan, but forget Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, are going to be swayed because of the Israel-Gaza issue. I could be wrong about this. But I, I've seen a lot of um, hype, and I'm not sure that it's going to translate into electoral votes. At least I'm not persuaded yet. I actually think that there is significantly more nuance in the Biden administration's actions in this region. I give him enormous credit. I want to go back to something Corey said at the start, which is crucial. She said if she were Biden she would try and separate between the people and the government. I, I, my understanding, Corey, is that you were talking about Israelis and the Israeli government. And I want to tell you guys, I think that Joe Biden has been a magician. Hmm. I think that his administration and he personally have handled the immense crises that Netanyahu has dropped on their doorstep about as well as anybody can. I don't think it's easy. Um, I just want to point out, about half an hour ago, the United States issued a pretty sharp rebuke to Israel about the fighting underway right now in Khan Yunis, um, about the subject of civilian deaths. I, um, I want to say a few things. One is, I think American interests in the Middle East are preponderant, and we're maybe not discussing them enough. But to put it very bluntly, if Israel falls in any way, okay, the Israeli army showed the world an utter collapse on October 7th. Having a, a solid 
Israel that can defend itself and that can provide support for U.S. policy in this region is a crucial part of the United States' understanding of the Middle East in its entirety. And what Israel showed the United States and the rest of the world on October 7th is we don't even have borders. We don't have an army. There were people who spent 30 hours in little security rooms waiting for a soldier to show up and help them. Israel showed that there was no structure of state. There's a lot to discuss about that, but I think that's an important point. And I think the Americans' immediate perception was, oh my God, this could be a game changer. And I don't think they're wrong in terms of American positioning in this region. So I think that plays a bigger role than what we've discussed this far. And I think that Biden, Biden has almost mirror image popularity in Israel compared to Netanyahu. So Netanyahu, I think right now has the approval of maybe 25%, 20% of the Israeli people. Biden has the approval of around 80% of Israelis. Wow. So you're right, David. But what the Biden administration has succeeded in doing, I think magisterially, is separating the prime minister from the people. So the White House has very carefully, very smartly chosen the issues where it will criticize Netanyahu. And it seems to be displaying a greater understanding of kind of the Israeli Weltanschauung than the prime minister has. It's sort of an astonishing thing. There hasn't been, in terms of keeping Israelis on side with American interests, the Biden administration hasn't made a single misstep. I'm very, very treacherous, in a very treacherous time. So I give them credit. I think that there's more criticism of Israel from the Biden administration, at least I perceive it daily, you know, maybe more than what you see over there. But I also think the question of American interests, top, top of the priorities, American interests, I think that that has significant import. By the way, what's happening in the Red Sea which is a sort of corollary to the war in Gaza and which could still explode, has affected American economic interests significantly and is probably going to get worse. Okay, so we've got about five minutes left. And so with that in mind, I would like to turn to each of you for a minute to respond to that or to say anything else you want, starting with you, Corey. I'm not surprised that the president's um that the president's policies and decisions are incredibly um, are incredibly popular in Israel, and I'm super sympathetic to the trauma that Israelis are experiencing right now. But I'm skeptical that the American voting public views it in quite the same way, especially Democratic voters, um, and I'm also not persuaded. I'd love, Noga, your examples of where you think Biden administration influence changed the choices of the Israeli government. Has it, Noga? Oh, sorry. I thought I was waiting to the end. Um, I want to say one other thing, which is I don't think U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel in this war is static. So we're talking about a situation which thus far has lasted 110 days. but. The next 30 days, let's say, I expect that there will be a public and a real behind the scenes shift in American policy and American statements towards Israel. I don't think we're 
I don't think we can at this stage describe something fixed, like a long-term policy. Um, I think U.S. influence has changed the course of Israeli policy in incredibly important ways. I think um, I think that in the first week after the October 7th attack, I think that this government would have launched a preemptive, what it would consider a preemptive attack against Hezbollah, meaning against all of southern Lebanon and possibly even reaching Beirut. And I think that the, the Israeli army was clearly not equipped and not prepared for such a thing. But I think without U.S. significant, heavy U.S. pressure, I think that that's what would have happened. Don't take my word for it. Take Gadi Eisenkot's words for it. And I think what we're seeing right now, the move to a phase three, I think also, Corey, you brought this up before, maybe Rosa, um, the shift in the tactics of this war, in the presence of IDF soldiers in Gaza, and in the sort of fighting underway, plus the insufficient but changing um, Israeli attitudes towards allowing um, humanitarian aid into Gaza. I think all of this has changed. I mean, these changes are caused almost solely by United States pressure and it's constant pressure. I don't think two days have gone by since October 7th that there hasn't been some senior and influential American official in Israel. And I think that... Um, I just think that the influence is 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 great. And I want to say another thing. I don't I think Israelis are grateful to Biden, but I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't talking about something superficial, popularity in that sense. Biden comes across to Israelis as authentic and credible. And in Israel, at this moment, there's no leader who comes across as either authentic or credible. So that has given Biden an outsized impact personally. I'm not even talking now about the military cooperation. or It's simply given Biden a platform. And I think that vis-a-vis the Israeli situation, I think he's used it very well. Ed? Yeah, I think that's a very well-made point, and it's something I underappreciated. You know, there is no, the, the, there's no real credit and it's in that sense an unjust thing for a superpower that is working behind the scenes to claim credit for stuff that hasn't happened like the preemptive war on Hezbollah and that's you know that's unfortunate um and thanks for making that point I'd like to push back on two things very quickly one is um you know most of um, Biden's more moderate allies in- including also people who are working for him are close to despair um, about the effect on him of this policy. Chris Coons, his best friend in politics, a very moderate senator, as you know, from Delaware, um, has, has... I went to college with Chris Coons. Okay, so you know you know how understated and reticent and, and non-combative he is in his words. So when he says, I think it might be time we put conditions on military aid to Israel, you know, that is the equivalent of a broadside by his linguistic, we are his sort of semantic standards, um, all kinds of moderates. It's not just the progressives. Um, and people within the administration are, I think, as Corey said at the beginning, you know, this is Biden's, um, this is Biden's um, sort of gut himself. And that explains a lot of why he's so popular in Israel, because it is authentic. And 
Um, he has deep affection for Israel, but he is doing himself uh, self-harm politically. Um, and I think um, the other point I'd like to push back mildly is if you look at the margins of victory um, in um, states like Michigan, Arizona, um, Pennsylvania, and Georgia in the 2020 elections of Biden over Trump. Um, and if you look at the size of the Arab American uh, and Muslim American populations in those states, they are multiply larger in each of those states, uh, with the exception of Pennsylvania. They are multiply large, larger than Biden's margin of victory. And that's without talking about disenthused, unenthused younger voters whose support he's going to need. So I do think this could, the longer this goes on, have a material impact in November. Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, it's a good point, although this is not 2020 in many, in many um, serious, in many serious ways. Um, uh, we've got 60 seconds left, Nelga, so I will give you the last 60 seconds. Thanks. Um, I, I don't actually think we disagree. Um, I think Chris Coons's comment is exactly what I was referring to when I said, I think Biden's policy is going to shift. I think we're hearing that from his closest allies. I'm not sure the Israeli government is hearing it enough, but I certainly am. So I think I just want to go back to what I said. It's not a static situation. Um, and you may be right about the voters. I I could be misjudging that. I would be surprised if a foreign policy issue had that impact, but you may absolutely be right. Yeah. Uh, I bet Chris Coons was a lot of fun in college. <laughs> he was um, bushy-haired. Come on. And it changed his life. He was like a redhead, bushy-haired, bearded, very friendly guy. Wow. He seems like a very nice person. He is, he is a very nice person, but that is not an image of him that I ever had. But there, Corey, that's an image you could actually live with, as opposed to some of the ones you've gotten um, over, over the course of doing this podcast. Noga, thank you so, so much for joining us. We hope you will come back again now that we've figured out how to connect with you and have a conversation like this. Uh, your views are super important to us. Uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank Corey. I want to thank Ed. I want to thank Rosa. And I want to thank everybody else for listening. Uh, this, to me, is just the kind of conversation uh, that this show was created for. And uh, we look forward to sharing many more of them with you. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>